This is Pastor Matthew Castro at Central Church. I'm the adult ministries pastor, and you are listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Ullman. Revealing yourself to us and not leaving us in the dark about who you are. As we study, we want to know you better. Teach us to uh, embrace the character that you have revealed so that we may live rightly with you, so that we will understand that you really do care about us and are concerned. So, Father, grant us these privileges for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we started, I think, with veracity last week. Is that, the, is that right? The, the truthfulness of God? Did we start with that? Did we? Yeah. Um, did we, I, I can't remember where we stopped, so I'm going to start with communicable attributes here. We'll just go back over this. Fair, yeah, we did. Did we finish that? Okay, let me go down to Psalm 22 then. Uh, when, in fact, let me start at the beginning with veracity, just so that we have these basic ideas down before we move any farther. We're dealing from now on with the communicable attributes of God. I was thinking driving over here, <clears throat> one thing I did not say when we were dealing with his incommunicable attributes, the characteristics that he has that he shares with no one else. Okay, the incommunicable attributes. These are the things that ought to drive us to our knees in utter worship and awe in his presence. The communicable attributes ought to drive us to our feet in joy and, and delight. So the, uh, uh, one of the men who had a major impact on 20th century thought in relationship to the character of God was a man named Rudolf Otto. And Otto wrote a book on, on the holiness of God in which he described the holiness of God as having two as aspects. He put it in Latin, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, let me see if I can remember it. Um, the um, Mysterium Tremendum, the mystery that causes people to tremble. So that's the incommunicable attributes. And then the Mysterium Foscanons, that is, the mystery that draws people to God. And what we're beginning to look at with veracity are these things that draw us to God. In, in, in a sense, the veracity of God is a little frightening. Yes? Because he doesn't tolerate lies. He does not lie himself, and he doesn't tolerate lies. But as we shall see in talking about the veracity of God, the veracity of God is something that is, a, is the groundwork of our faith, there is no reason to, to, to trust God if he is not true. So the attribute of veracity refers to God's truthfulness. The Logos Study Bible or Bible Study Factbook says that is his identity as the source of all truth and the unfailing conformity of all divine action and revelation to his identity. And that last clause is really important. The unfailing conformity of all divine action and revelation to his identity. Because one of the things that we see when we study the language for truthfulness of God in Scripture is that he is true in, in many different senses. He's true in that he is the true God. There is no other. But he's also true in the sense that we talk about somebody being true blue. 
What do we mean when we say they're true blue? Not that they're University of Memphis supporters, okay? What, what do you mean when you say that somebody is true blue? Yes, but they're faithful, they're reliable, they're loyal. Does that make sense to you? So this is our God, and this is, I'm glad that they put that last phrase in there because it is essential to understanding the character of God as true. Hebrews 6.18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. If God is true, then his promises are reliable, and that's another word for true in Hebrew. Are you with me here? When I'm, when I'm thinking about the truth of God in the Old Testament, I'm thinking about his reliability. Uh, so Titus 1-2, he is unlying. He is free from all deceit, truthful, trustworthy, one who does not lie. He's, he's accurate, sincere. Titus 1-2, we talked about these last week, so I'm moving past them. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So we have reason for hope. God doesn't lie. He never has lied. He is incapable of lying. Uh, by the way, if, if he is a God whose word creates reality, then he can't lie. All he can do is speak reality. Are you with me here? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So if God says something is so, there was, there was a, a way that we, we kind of teased each other uh, in my neighborhood. And Mom said it so, so. Yes? If Mama said it so, then it's so. It's so. But Mama can lie. Because she told me about Santa Claus <laughs> and the Easter Bunny. Yeah. Yes. So, so when they took me to get my appendix out, she told me about the Ether Bunny. Yeah. yeah. I got it. So, uh, but God doesn't lie. In fact, everything He says is true. And when He speaks about things that don't exist, they come into existence. Yes. Right? So his word is reality. Um, this is the problem of our day, brothers and sisters. Our day is trying to redefine reality according to its own terms. And it's going to lead to utter despair and distress on every side. It's going to damage everyone who embraces that. The only hope is for us to find out what reality really is and live in light of that reality. Um, so um, veracity, define truthfulness or honesty, especially when consistent or habitual. That's a, a good uh, um, dictionary definition of veracity. But the scriptures talk about resting our life on two irre irrevocable facts. Uh, so here, on two irrevocable facts rests the assurance of receiving the blessings that are the content of Christian hope and that are already prepared for the people of God. Although the two items remain unspecified in the text, um, 
the reference is almost certainly to the promise of God and his oath. Now, God doesn't need to make oaths. Who would he swear by? <laughs> yeah. So in court, uh, so help me God. Yes? No. But who would he swear by? So why does he give an oath? To assure to the heirs of salvation all the promises he's made. It's doubly sure. He said it, and he took an oath. Um, uh, so let's move past the truth. In the Old Testament, and, and frequently in the New, uh, I, well, in the New primarily, truth is coherence with reality or accuracy. Uh, but in Deuteronomy, um, and in Deuteronomy 22.20, uh, this is dealing with how you deal with court cases if the charge is true, uh, the, the Hebrew word is davar, which is, which is word. If the word is true, then certain consequences follow. 1 Kings 10, 6, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 28, and now, O sovereign Lord, your words are true. God, and these are God's promises, therefore are trustworthy. Um, I'm not convinced of that yet, emotionally. Intellectually, I'm convinced of it. What does the DCH stand for? Say again. DCH, what is that? Where is that? That's uh, three true correctness of word statements. Parentheses DCH. Oh, DCH is uh, Dictionary of, of uh, Classical Hebrew. Um, no, and, and you wouldn't want it. <laughs> it's, it's a very cumbersome work to use and, and also exceed, exceedingly expensive. <laughs> so uh, I think it's two large volumes. I think it's $150 or something like that. So, and without having a background in Hebrew, it wouldn't be of any use to you anyway. But um, the, the point I'm, I'm getting at, folks, is I believe intellectually that the promises of God are true, but when I face a circumstance where one of his promises is relevant and the circumstance is overwhelming to me, I'm not sure I can trust God. Me. Am, I, am I making sense to you? This, yes, sir. There used to be a joke. Guy's hanging on the edge of a cliff and he looks up and says, is there anybody up there who can help me? And God says, yes, I'm up here. Just let go and I'll catch you. The guy thinks for a minute and says, is there anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's, uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Folks, all, every one of us is immature in faith. And the immaturity of our faith is measured in some measure by uh, the number of the promises of God that we really rely on every day. And when things get tough, we don't give up one. Um, how often in my life have I said, Lord, how long is this going to last? Now that, as, as we shall see, or perhaps we have seen, is a biblical prayer, and it's a right and good prayer but 
at that time, I'm beginning to wonder about the goodness of God. I, I, I affirm it as a, as a statement of fact, but I'm not so sure he's reliable in this particular circumstance. I'm trying to make up ways of solving my problem. Is that, is that like Sunday's message on the big God and the small God? Yeah. He becomes the small God when I keep through. That's right. And then when it's good, oh, he got this big God. That's right. So uh, Isaiah 59, 14 and 15, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Uh, observe that, do, do you know about poetic parallelism in the Old Testament? Move your heads. Okay, some is and some ain't. The way you know a poetic line in scripture is that you typically make a statement in the first line and echo it in some way in the second line. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you follow this? Um, sometimes you will use synonyms or antonyms in order to make it poetic. This is how you make poetry in Hebrew. And the lines are typically fairly short in a Hebrew poem. Um, so here, Isaiah 59, much of the prophets is poetry. So here, justice is turned back, righteousness, these are synonyms. All right? Yes? Are you with me? For truth has stumbled and uprightness cannot enter. So truth and uprightness are rough synonyms. One of my tasks as I interpret such a passage is to unfold, well, what, what does uprightness add that I didn't know about truth. Does this make sense to you? So uh, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Uh, Isaiah 59, uh, 14 and 15. Well, we've already talked about it. Let's move on. 1 Kings 17, 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And that, that here... It's, it's accurate, yes, because of what had happened in the event. Psalm 18.30, this God, his way is perfect, and I have this set up improperly. Let me get it set up the way I want it here. Uh, now we uh, are ready for this. Uh, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I have a, an asterisk by the word perfect. The word perfect in Hebrew is a word that means something. In, in fact, it describes, the, the root of this word describes Job. Um, turn to Job 1. Uh, I don't know how this translation reads on this This. I don't use this very often. This was a Bible I, brought to, I bought to take to Israel with me, but because it was raining outside today, I didn't want to get my expensive Bible messed up, so I brought this one. So Job 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was, and you have in your text, I suppose, blameless. Do you? Blameless. That's this word. This doesn't mean that Job never did anything wrong. He confesses wrong that he did later in the book. But it does mean that he's blameless in the sense that 
he um, has a right relationship with God, number one. Number two, when he does sin, he deals with it. And he doesn't hide it. And that's specifically how he describes himself later um, in terms of, of the sin that he's committed. I don't hide, have I hid my sin from the community? They know my life, I'm an open book. Um, but this word in here, Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. It's complete. It's, and that's what Tom means in Hebrew. It's complete. Uh, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord proves true. That means he's reliable. <laughs> yes. So he is a shield for all those who rely on him. Um, uh, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every the Lord approve. <laughs> I washed my mouth this morning, can't do a thing with it. Um, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Uh, but truth in Scripture is not limited to the sense of speaking reality. One's word may be true, but it is even better if one's words and deeds line up. One is then reliable. And so truth often refers to God's reliability. Uh, reliability, dependability, trustworthiness, faithfulness, constancy, usually as an attribute of God. And that's DCH again, there can, a dictionary of, of uh, classical Hebrew. Um, it, it's the one that I use constantly. Uh, there, there are uh, several Hebrew lexicons, but this is the one. Uh, there are three that... I have used over my life, and, and this one is the one that I come back to over and over again now in my study. First um, Kings 11, 4 and 15, 3. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the, after the gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of, his David, of David his father. True. Yes, you see it here? But... It was, he was not reliable in his relationship with God. Built temples for, for his wives' gods. Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So lead me in the way of truth and teach me, because I'm going to go in that path and i got to be able to trust you. Yes, God is reliable. I say this, I, I find the more I say these things out loud, they, the more I actually come to believe them. Okay? Uh, <laughs> I, I, this has been my experience over the last, gosh, I started in 72, so this is 51 uh, years uh, in, in some kind of public speaking setting. And and I find I, I actually came to, to, to believe <laughs> things about God after I was teaching them. So one of the reasons I wanted to teach the attributes of God is to remind myself. Um, Genesis 24, 27. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken steadfast love and his, and there it is, faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The Lord has not abandoned his faithfulness. 
Yes, it's truth in Hebrew. It's the same word that we've been seeing used as truth elsewhere in these texts. But here, the, uh, the translation I was using, uh, I think this is the ESV most of the time, is, uh, is, is right in translating it faithfulness. Revelation 3.14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He, so, so here, true will be primarily referring to the accuracy of the testimony. But faithful, notice these are faithful and true. Yes? This is a figure of speech in Hebrew that I, or, or in, in literature uh, that appears over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New. But the idea is you, you couple two words together by the word and, and you, uh, and you understand that they're modifying each other. They're not two separate concepts. They're modifying each other. So instead of using an, an adjective to describe one or the other, you use both of them together. So they're, they're elevated to a, a higher level in our thinking. I know, I know you signed up for a grammar course. <laughs> Amen? But folks, you can't understand the Bible without some grammar. You've got to study some grammar. I'm sorry. But I, I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but, but the Bible is written in language. I, I know that comes as a shock, but it's written in language. And language, you only understand a building if you understand its structure. You only understand language if you understand its structure. Okay. What are you thinking, brother? You're, you're kind of looking at me askance here. You're, you're an evil man, Alman. I, I don't want to hear any more of this kind of junk. <laughs> but he is faithfully true and truthfully faithful. So we could, we could read it either way, but, but uh, uh, he, John is inspired to write it faithful and true. Uh, Revelation 9-11, Then I saw heaven and opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and righteousness he judges and makes war. Um, I'm, I'm getting chills as I say this. It's, it's a recurring theme in the Old Testament. Indeed, part of the covenant formulary, and I, I know that just floats your boat, but uh, covenant formulary we'll talk about later. Uh, do you remember how God described himself for Moses? Turn to Exodus 34, 6. I've been working on that this afternoon. That's why I remember that verse. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have remembered it. But in Exodus 34, 6, on Mount Sinai, God passes before Moses. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the Lord by name. Um, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers, by dealing with the children and children's children of the third and fourth generation. We're going to talk about this more later, so I'm not going to go into any detail on it right now. Um, 
the, the, the great issue that I want to emphasize at this point is to say that something in the neighborhood of 15 or 20 times in the Old Testament, uh, parts of this statement we have just read are repeated at key points in Israel's history in Psalms and the prophets in the history books. And so this is a kind of summary of the whole relationship God has with Israel. Um, um, and I can't, I can't impress upon you enough how important these, these terms are, especially the openings, the opening, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and sin, especially those opening words. They're just, they're just profoundly important. We'll talk about each one of these terms as we go. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to this on other occasions, but right now this is just an introduction to it. And, and Old Testament scholars call that the covenant formulary. It's a way of summarizing the Mosaic covenant, if you will. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Think about it, folks. God in faithfulness, having established a relationship, if he loses the relationship, he's not faithful. I didn't go seeking God. He came seeking me. Are you with me? Yes? Oh. So I didn't grab hold of God's collar and pull him down from heaven and say, look, I want to be one of your children. God came in the preaching of the word at Britain Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. Um, and touched the life of a little seven-year-old boy. Amen. Am I making sense to you? Yeah. And changed my life. There wasn't a huge change. When you're seven, there's not a huge change. I was a good boy before that, and I was a good boy afterwards. Yes? My mother didn't know that. <laughs> she spanked me an awful lot. <laughs> And she's with the Lord now, and she's perhaps if she's hearing this, she understands now. She understands the spirit with which I say that. But Mother really did have a black belt in spanking. I've told you that before. But, uh, and she wielded it with skill. Um, so, but here, this is the Lord, folks. Listen to what he says about the reliability of the Lord. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, and that's this word hesed at the top of the screen. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness, and that's our word that we're talking about, truth, will ever preserve me. Um, Psalm 61.7, may he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast, and here we're talking about the Davidic king. May he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Uh, 
God appoints guards over his people, and the guards over his people are his attributes of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. What, yeah. what does that word mean, Well, we're going to talk about it in, in some detail later, but steadfast love is the way it's often translated in the, in the newer translations. Um, it's, it's a really complicated word. There are three whole books written on this word, just on this one word. It's extremely important, 245 times in the Old Testament. Um, so um, we'll, we'll spend some time with it a little later. But at this point, steadfast love, you know what steadfast love is, yes? Because some, some of you have had children who've gone a little astray, yes? Did you quit loving them? No? You wanted better for them. You prayed for them and you hoped for better for them, yes? But your love didn't waver. That's steadfast love, among other things. And, and there's, there's more to it than that. John 1.14, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Truth. Now, it means that what Jesus says is true, but I've paraphrased it. I've given a paraphrase from one of the great commentaries on the book of, of uh, John is by a guy named uh, Beasley Murray. I can't think of his first name. Um, he, it, it's in the uh, Word Biblical Commentary, but he gives this summary, the gracious constancy of God. And, and here, um, well, this is, this is what truth is in, re in respect to Jesus. He is full of grace and gracious, and in fact, we might even paraphrase it, this is that figure of speech, grace and truth, so that the so that the figure of speech I mentioned a while ago, where you have two nouns joined by one con uh, conjunction, then they become a single statement. And the idea that, that Beasley Murray is offering here is that the two of them together suggest the gracious constancy of God in Jesus. Jesus is full of God's gracious constancy. That's amazing to me. Uh, in Matthew, I was just teaching on the Lord's Supper this afternoon in a class, and uh, we were dealing with how the message of the book of Matthew impacts the uh, teaching of the Lord's Supper in Matthew. Um, Matthew 14, there are two great feasts. At the beginning of chapter 14, Herod gives a great feast for his birthday. You remember this? Who's invited to Herod's great feast? Who, who would you invite if you were Herod? Nobles. Nobles. The, the officials of my government, yes. The people who can keep me in power, yes. <laughs> uh, the other great feast is the feeding of the 5,000. Who was invited to that feast? Yeah, hungry people. Nobodies were invited to that feast. They wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near even the building where Herod had his feast. Yes? When, when you get to Matthew 26 and you're talking about the Lord's Supper in that passage, in verses 21 to 25, he announces that one of you will betray me. Yes? In verses 31 to 35, right after the Lord's Supper passage, he announces that Peter will deny him. 
Did he ban Judas and Peter from the table? And he announced in verses 31 to 35 that he, if he announced it, he knew before the supper, yes, that they were going to abandon him and deny him. Did he ban them from the supper? Then God, Jesus, in his gracious constancy, welcomes failures to his, to his table. That's stunning. He's a king like no other king. So when you feel least worthy to be at the table, just remember Judas was there too. The reason we know that, folks, is in John 13, Judas didn't go out until after the supper. Okay? So Judas was there, and probably at the left hand of Jesus, on the left side of Jesus. In other words, Judas had Jesus to his right. Yes? So Judas was, in, a, in effect, a favored man at the table. So the issue, when, when Jesus took the bread and he broke it, who did he give it to first? Judas. So Judas took part in the Lord's Supper. And Peter took part in the Lord's Supper. And men who were certain to abandon him within hours took part in the Lord's Supper. So when you feel least worthy, go back to Matthew 24 and read that chapter, 26 and read that chapter. God's nature is truth. This means that all he says and all he does is coherent and reliable. I'm not completely coherent. I am not completely reliable. My wife will tell you that. I took the trash out this morning, this afternoon, because it's trash day tomorrow, and I didn't want to be, I saw that it was getting dark outside. I thought I'd better get the, the bins out before the rain started, just in case. So on the way over, I said, boy, I'm glad I got the bins out today, because it was raining. And she said, did you get the trash in the bath, in the kitchen? <laughs> no, I didn't get the trash in the kitchen. She wasn't picking on me, but she was just reminding me I'm, I'm not altogether reliable. Are you with me here? And I'm not altogether coherent. You can talk, testify to that. Uh, but uh, truth in the New Testament is contrasted with three things. It's contrasted with lies or falsehood, which we would all understand. It's also, so 1 John 2.27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Second is, uh, truth is uh, contrasted with what's inaccurate. Um, so Mark 12, 32 uh, and it's contrasted with what's valid but incomplete. Uh, turn to Well, we won't turn to John 6. We'll have it on the screen here. In John 6, Jesus makes a statement. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. This is, do any of you remember uh, Norman Vincent Peale? This is the way to win friends and influence Pharisees. Uh, <laughs> unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Now, you and I understand that this is, this is a figure of speech. Yes, he doesn't actually mean cannibalism. But this is part of the strategy that, that John highlights in Jesus' teaching ministry in John, that he says things that are offensive or confusing on the earthly level if, if you only understand them on the earthly level, but he intends you to understand them on the spiritual level. So this, but he's doing this for a specific purpose in John 6, and that is to separate those who have no faith from him, in him from those who are his real followers. And it happens. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 54 says, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us food to drink? For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What's he contrasting this with? The true food and the true drink. You've already forgotten the context, haven't you? Your, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Is it false? Why is it not false? I, I hear... I don't hear any words. <laughs> It's edible. But what makes it not false? It was sent by God. It's a gift from God. But it only gave them temporary life. Yes? So what is the food that Jesus will give? Well, what is, what is the effect of the food is eternal life? What is the food that he will give? It's true food. And his blood is true drink. Now, that's specifically oh, offensive to any Jew. Nobody would think of drinking blood. Uh, this is uh, verse 55. Turn to John 6 just, just for an instant. We won't spend any time there. <clears throat> but in John 6, um, at verse uh, 66, I'm sorry, 59. Let's, let's pick it up at 59. Jesus said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. In the synagogue, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It would be one thing to say it out on a mountainside. But in a synagogue? Then many of his disciples, when they heard these things, said, this is a difficult saying. Who can, who can understand it? When Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining about this, he said to them, does this cause you to be offended? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, 
but there are some of you who do not believe. And then parenthetically, and in the, in, in the, uh, the Bible I have here has parentheses here. It's right here. For Jesus had already known from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew this from the beginning when he chose Judas. So Jesus added, because of this, I told you that no one can come to me. Now, that's too Calvinistic, so let's not read it. Skip to verse 66. <laughs> After this, many of his disciples quit following him and did not accompany him any longer. The next verse, I wonder if I were staging this, I tell you how I would stage it. If I were having a, a stage play, I would have Jesus look to the disciples, the 12. Jesus said to the 12 I'd have him say it this way, you don't want to go away too, do you? And dear Peter, who gets an awful treatment from most of us, <laughs> dear Peter, got it right, and he got it right royally here. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Do you think Peter understood what Jesus was talking about any more than the rest of, who, had, who had left? Probably not. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Uh, dear Peter, thank you, Lord, for Peter that day. It must have been a real encouragement to, Pete, to Jesus. Um, the, the point I'm making, folks, is uh, true bread is not wonder bread. <laughs> or what's, what's the typical... Brand here, I can't remember. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, his, Jesus is bread that will give eternal life. It's complete bread as opposed to the incomplete bread. The manna wasn't false. So true is not opposed to what's false in the manna. It's, tr it's, it's opposed to what can't give eternal life. So this is complete bread. This is bread that not just fosters life for a day or two. It's bread that lasts to eternal life. So it's true. Manna they had to eat every day. Yeah. Well, in a sense, we have to feed on Jesus every day too, but not to keep, keep alive. Yeah. Um, Maybe spiritually. Yeah. Uh, do you have any questions about the veracity of God? We're, this is the end of that segment of our notes. Well, let's move to, we've talked about his knowledge, his uh, omniscience. Uh, uh, God knows all things, both actual and possible, in one uh, simple and most, uh, I can't think how it goes, and most perfect act. That's not right. But God, God doesn't reason from A to B to C. Um, well, let's see, I've got a problem here. This is true, Then, if this is true, then this must be true, and I examine it and find out that this is true. And I, well, well, that still doesn't solve my problem, but if this is true, maybe that's true, and if I examine it, I find that's true, and that may be the place where I find the solution to my problem that I began to reason about. You, you follow me on this? Yes, no? Move your heads. Say again. Well, um, your car's making a noise. And you get out, and you have somebody drive the car. Is it in the wheels? 
Is it in the engine? Hope it's not in the engine, but if it's in the engine, can I tell where it is in the engine? Yes? So I've, I've ruled out one option. So I've got, I've got another hypothesis that it's the, in the engine, because where, where else, you know, it could be in the rear end, I guess, not the wheels. But um, if it's in the engine, where is it in the engine? Um, and then you, you think, okay, well, we've got to get this to the, to the shop get it worked on. Uh, th this is what I'm talking about. He doesn't reason that way. He simply knows. He knows all the premises and knows all the conclusions so that everything is present to his knowledge all at once. I, I don't understand that. I can't imagine. I would go mad with all those things going in my mind at once. That's why I can't sleep at night sometimes because I've got things running through my head and I can't, I can't break the, the, the course of thought so I either put on music or I put on an audible book and listen to it so I can focus on one thing and, and go to sleep. Uh, but this is the knowledge of God we've already talked about. That was an incommunicable attribute of God in the sense that it, it, we're not omniscient. But God is not only knowledgeable, because there are people who are educated beyond their, their, their wisdom. Yes? Yes? See, a lot of them, a lot of them have doctorates. <laughs> so, <laughs> say again. Sometimes too. Um, wisdom, basic definition of wisdom, the ability or result of an ability to think and act, utilizing knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. That's a good um, basic definition of wisdom. Wisdom, here's a, here's a little more close, a, a, a simple definition. I thought I had come up with it on my own. I got it from J.I. Packer. Uh, wisdom in Scripture means choosing the best and noblest end at which to aim, along with the most appropriate and effective means to it. Or to say it a little more simply, wisdom is choosing the best possible goals and the best possible means to achieve them. Would you? Can you think of anything that would that that wisdom would be other than that? Um, so, God is is. We are told that God is wisdom, over, is wise over and over and over in Scripture. So, we've got to understand, folks. This is going to be tough. But this world is the best of all possible worlds for God's purpose. You like that? Is God in control? Yes. Is he wise? Does he control wisely? Then this is the best of all possible worlds for the purpose of God. Now we've got to ask, what is the purpose of God? Well, I, I can do a little speculation here, and speculation um, can take you anywhere you want to go, so just, just let me speculate for a minute. The angels, I don't even know where, but at some point in Scripture, the angels are called the angels of his power. Are you aware that Peter teaches that the angels are, are learning from us about grace? Um, 
So it's First Peter or Second Peter. I think it's probably Second Peter, but I can't remember. Do you remember, Howard? <clears throat> yeah, it's Second Peter, and it's described that they're looking at what mm-hmm. is going on between yeah. us and God. Yeah. And trying to understand. So they, folks, God is infinite. So that no created being knows all there is about the being of God. Yes? Does that make sense to you? So the angels, for all their glory, for all their grandeur, don't understand grace. They're learning about grace from us. Um, So what kind of world is necessary to reveal grace? What is grace? Not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. It's, it's more than that, and we'll come back to it later. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is not for the worthy. It's specifically and only for the unworthy. What'd you say? I'm trying to think it in my head. Okay. Um, So, in a world where God wants to reveal grace, what has to happen? Imperfection. What kind of imperfection? Sinfulness has to come. We're going to talk about the goodness of God before too many more weeks. I'm not sure how, how close that is at this point. But we'll talk about the goodness of God. And after that, we're going to talk about the problem of evil. And I'm not going to solve it. Nobody has solved the problem of evil. But I'm going to, we're going to talk about some things from a, a book by a, a two men, uh, John Wenham and Gordon um, Norman Geisler, uh, called The Roots of Evil. And I've, I've taken some extracts from the, that book. that it's, They're very helpful. But folks... Is God wise? Is he good? Then why did he, re, did, did he create a world in which not only there could be sin, but there would be sin? Because his goal as a wise and good God is to reveal his grace. So all of the misery in human history has come from the goal of God revealing his grace. That's hard, isn't it? Um, We have two friends in the hospital now, two long-term friends. One of them goes back 50 years uh, with us. He's in the hospital. He's in a very very minor ailment, but he's in the hospital. And his wife has long-term COVID uh, and all the effects of that. She's getting good treatment now and is beginning to come out of it. The other one, what did he what did he have? Uh, Barry, cirrhosis of the liver. Barry had, and he's never he's never been a drinker, but he had. Some of you may know the name Barry Mooney, Barry and Ellen Mooney. Uh, apparently, I don't see any light coming on, um, but uh, Barry had Crohn's disease, and the treatment they gave him led to a university study that has given him 
um, cirrhosis of the liver. He, that man has suffered in ways I can't even imagine. They, they gave him some kind of a painkiller. They lived here in Memphis. He worked for the college. She worked for the college. Um, they lived here in Memphis. And he said, uh, when they'd give me that, that shot, he said, the pain went away. And he said, as time came near for the shot the, the next afternoon, he says, I don't care what else you do, just give me that shot. Because it, it was marvelous, he said. The pain was excruciating with Crohn's. And now he's facing this because of the illness he had so many years ago. My, my point is, folks, this is the best of all possible worlds for demonstrating the grace of God. Because you have to have fallen people who get into circumstances in which nobody else would trust, but they trust anyway. You see the grace of God. You see the glory of God in people who will trust God even when there's no overt reason. There's no obvious reason. There is no reasonable cause for trusting God, but you trust God because of what you've come to know. And so we have said before, never doubt in the darkness what you learned in the light. Am I making sense to you? You may have to remind me of that someday soon. Who knows? Um, God is both all-knowing and all-wise. He knows everything there is to know, and beyond that, he knows what to do with that information. One of the problems that we have in our government is we have a um, security service and the guys at the, at, the, at the base level of the security service are gathering information, but the guys more at the top don't know what to do with it. Is that a fair statement, Chago? Um, I was trained to be at the bottom of that intelligence gathering uh, system. I, I would have been perfectly safe. I'd have been sitting in a truck listening to a radio, turning the radio knob, but, uh, but the... Uh, and it would be in, it would have been in, East, in in Europe, so I would have been sitting there with uh, Germany and East Germany, and so. But the the point that I'm making is, though, the people at the top don't know what to do with the information. They come to all the wrong conclusions. They have no wisdom. God's wisdom is exercised. This is from John Feinberg. God's wisdom is exercised in decision-making, along with his other attributes of holiness, love, justice, goodness, etc. When he says this, it, it, do, do you see my cursor? You don't see it on the screen. You do? Okay. Uh, God's wisdom is exercised in decision-making. God doesn't make decisions. But the only way I can talk about God is in human terms. So that they're inaccurate but they make sense in a, in a, in a way. Uh, God's wisdom is exercised in decision-making along with his other attributes of holiness, love, justice, goodness, etc. Without this addition, it's, it's possible to think of, of God merely as the great tactician who knows how most efficiently to get the results he wants, regardless of what his decisions mean to his creatures. Turn to Isaiah 63. Once again, we won't spend any time here, but Isaiah 63 is a verse that just ca captured my heart 
years ago, and I can't get away from it. I refer to it frequently in my teaching. Um, now, I hope I've got the right passage. Uh, it doesn't look like I can tell the faithful acts. Um, ah, there it is. Isaiah 63, verse 7. Let's pick it up there. I will tell of the faithful acts of the Lord, of the Lord's praiseworthy deeds. I will tell about all the Lord did for us, the many good things he did for the family of Israel because of his compassion and great faithfulness. He said, certainly they will be my people, children who are not disloyal. He became their deliverer. Through all that they suffered, he suffered too. So with Barry, with his cirrhosis of the liver in, where is he, Indianapolis, Jane? Is, is he, do you know where the hospital is? Okay. Um, and uh, Noy in Fort Worth, the pain that they're going through, and everybody you know who's a child of God, God's suffering along with them. He's not untouched by the pain that you go through. Does that mean anything to you? Does that make any difference? You need to, you need to learn Psalm Isaiah 63, 9, and keep it close to your soul. So God, God, if God's just a tactician, it's possible to think of him as one who knows how most efficiently to get the results he, he wants, regardless of what his decisions mean to his creatures. That's not our God. He's a God of love and mercy. And as such, he's involved in the pain that you go through, the fears that you have. He understands your fears, the weaknesses you have, he understands your weaknesses, the pain that you have. He understands that pain. He doesn't afflict us willingly, but he does it to achieve a greater end, the greater end of bringing us to glory with the image of Christ imprinted upon us. If we knew how great that was, it would give us hope. Genesis 41, Joseph's wisdom. Egypt was famous for wisdom, but it failed in this incident. I'm, I'm depending on you knowing about Genesis 41. Only one moved by God, though, could help the Pharaoh, God of the land, and deliver the people from famine. <laughs> Pharaoh is the God of the land. That's part of his titulary as, as king. But he can't do anything about it. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Job 9, 4, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? This is the problem of our world. They're hardening themselves against him. Yes, they cannot succeed. It will be self-destructive. I've been listening to um, videos on YouTube by a guy named Peter Zion. I've mentioned him before, and Chago says he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's talking about um, a population collapse in a number of nations in our world, Germany, China, Japan, 
America has it coming very soon, but, but it's not as, as, as pronounced right now as it is in China, Japan, and Germany. The problem of it is we don't have enough children coming up to sustain our children in retirement. And that's population collapse. And now you add to it the, this whole movement of the LGBTQ community where their ways are the ways of death. That's right. They leave no life behind them. They are spending their whole lives on themselves individually and serving no one else. Am I making sense to you? And that's why God says their ways are the ways of death. They're killing themselves and they're killing our nation. And they don't even know it. They think that they, they are reveling in their freedom. They're reveling in their folly, but not in their freedom. And it's not because I disapprove of their lifestyle. I do, but that's not because why I say that. It's because who will take care of them in their old age? There will be no one to do it if they live to old age. So who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? This is a marvelous illustration. Our day is an astonishing illustration of this. Most of us will not live to see that day come. Yes, but many of us will. Uh, psalm 104 is a psalm about the wisely ordered earth, verse 24, where nothing is chaotic. It's, it's just a marvelous psalm. Um, but there's, there's one problem with Psalm 104. It's verse 35. There is one chaotic thing in the, in the world, and that's mankind. <laughs> Drive the wicked out. Destroy the wicked, O oh Lord. That's the only petition in Psalm 104. It's a praise psalm for the glorious, orderly creation that God has made. The only thing that's disorderly in the world is, is mankind. Job 36.5. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? God does not despise anyone. God doesn't look at you and despise you. He is mighty in strength of understanding. God's wisdom is seen as in his works of creation, preservation, and redemption. It is his choice of his own glory as his goal and his decision to achieve it. Um, but furthermore, first by creating a marvelous variety of things and people, Psalm 104. Second, by kindly providences of all sorts, Psalm 145, Acts 14. Third, by the redemptive wisdom of Christ crucified. What kind of wisdom puts your own son on a cross? but it is the wisdom of, God, of Christ crucified. It's a wisdom that knows what he's aiming at and knows how to achieve it. And the only way to achieve it, you remember Jesus, I know you do, I know you know this, in the garden before he's arrested. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew what he had to face. He knew he had to face God-forsakenness, 
And if you ask me what that means, I will tell you. I have no idea. That's a mystery hidden by God. The most important events in history, nearly in the scriptures, God is hidden secretly. The conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary is announced, but is completely hidden. The misery of Christ on the cross is hidden in darkness. Yes? Even the resurrection is hidden, uh, but it's affirmed mightily. Yes? So the redemptive wisdom of Christ crucified is part of the wisdom of God in this world. If he, if he will not spare his own son, what will he spare us from to get us to glory? And since he knows what is really best for us, now, folks, it's not like for those of us who are older, it's not like the medicine we took when we were kids. But mom, I hate it. It tastes so bad. Yeah, but that means it's working. That's the worst logic I ever heard in my life. It made no sense to me then. It makes no sense to me now. Because now medicine tastes better. Amen. <laughs> NyQuil tastes pretty good. <laughs> I, I have a little flask of it in my, in my coat here. <laughs> Just, I take a little nippy from it. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but, but, the, but, but folks, if we, knew, if we knew what the glory of Jesus really is, and if we knew, if we trusted God's word, that his goal for us is to be exactly like him, then it would make whatever we go through worth the, worth the cost. Um, one of the, one of the I, I suspect, I don't, I don't know this out of my own knowledge, but I'm, I'm just putting two and two together and drawing three out of it. Maybe, I, maybe I'm utterly wrong. But I suspect one of the goals of a drill sergeant in basic training is, is to so motivate the troops that they will submit to the training so that they can survive in battle. I, I wondered after I got out of basic, though I didn't go to, go to combat, I wondered how I would feel if I was a, a, a drill instructor and knew that most of my trainees had died in battle. Could I not have done something different? Did I fail at some point? I don't know whether they ever got that kind of information. No, but I've talked to some drill sergeants that think that. So um, they know what it's going to take for you to survive in battle. You have no idea as a soldier, as a new recruit. You have no idea. And the pain of basic, and I was only in the army. I wasn't a marine. The pain of the pain of basic training was tough for me. Am I making any sense to you? But at some point, the Lord gave me enough sense to think, well, maybe these guys know what it's going to take for me to survive if I do go into battle. Maybe I maybe I better cooperate with this. Um, but if that's the case in battle, what is it? when we're coming to the consummation of the ages and the, and the final glorification of Jesus. And you will be there reflecting his glory perfectly. Yeah. Amen. Then what will that mean to you? Um, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth 
and by understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke up and the clouds dropped down dew. Jeremiah 10, 12 to 13, talking about the idols. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in wealth, your end has come. I don't have the reference here to this. Your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men, as many as locusts, and they shall raise the shout of victory over you. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. I assume that's continuation of, yes, it is the continuation of uh, Jeremiah chapter 10. He's talking to Israel. Um, now my clock says it's, it's uh, 7.25 and I should have ended what, what time am I supposed to end? 7.30. 7.30? Oh, good. I thought it was 7.15. Thank you, Lord. I needed that. First uh, Corinthians one twenty four. But those, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To know Jesus is to know wisdom. First Corinthians one twenty and 3.19. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Romans 1, 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. This is the end of a major section in Romans, began in chapter 118 and comes to the conclusion in chapter 11. So the depth of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God are spelled out in chapters 118 to 11, 